So Matthew chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 21 to 39. And for reasons that we'll see pretty quickly, I've titled this message, Persistence in Prayer. Last week, we saw Jesus debate and discussion with an official delegation of scribes and Pharisees who were sent from Jerusalem to watch and to listen to Jesus, hoping to find things with which to accuse him. But Jesus ended that confrontation and privately taught his disciples about defilement which had been the topic of debate with the Pharisees. But then Jesus took his disciples out of the nation of Israel and into the region of Phoenicia, where the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon are located. Today, that region is the country of Lebanon. I want to share something with you real quickly. Just to give you a, a sense of what we're talking about. As you look at the map, it's a longer map. It's, it goes way down. But for now, we're looking at the section here where Jesus left the area down by the Sea of Galilee and traveled up to the areas of Tyre and even to Sidon. So somewhere in this area is where the story we're about to read takes place. By the way, we'll talk about the Decapolis a little bit later, and that's down here at the southern tip, actually, of the Sea of Galilee, and it goes down quite a ways before we get to Jerusalem, Jericho, and so forth. We'll probably look at this again, but I wanted to share that with you so that uh, you could have that in your mind. I gave that to you in your email as well, uh, so I pray that you will be able to, uh, to relate to what's being being done here. Now the trek from Gennesaret to Tyre was over 50 miles. I should have done this too. Let me uh, let me do this as well. A close version around the Sea of Galilee will show you the cities of Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, and here is Gennesaret. So it's right at the northwest corner or shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then it goes on down to Magdala, Tiberias, and so on. Uh, so I wanted you to see that as well. That's where Jesus and the disciples are leaving from to go up to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now that trek between those two cities 
If he was going just to Tyre, it was at least 50 miles. And it was nearly twice that to get to Sidon and taking at least a few days of walking. But Jesus had a purpose in going there. So let's read verses 21 to 28 together. Again, I hope your Bibles are open to Matthew 15. And we will read from there in the New King James. Then Jesus went out from there by the Sea of Galilee and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out to us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So as we said, Jesus purposely goes northwest along the Mediterranean to the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, Phoenicia to a people who were mostly unfriendly to Jewish Israel. And once there, we learned from Mark's gospel that he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. So once again, Jesus apparently wanted to have a bit of privacy. And by going out of Israel, he probably also wanted to get away from the scribes and Pharisees. But that wasn't to happen. Somehow word had gotten out, and a woman of Canaan, specifically she was a Syrophoenician woman, somebody from um, the area of Sire and the area which is in a part of Phoenicia. We find that in Mark's Gospel. This woman of Canaan found Jesus and quite desperately cried out to him for mercy and for her daughter, who was severely demon-possessed. Now, aside from being in a foreign country and the woman being a Gentile, 
This was a very common situation in Jesus' ministry, as we've already seen a number of times. But what is interesting here is that the woman clearly knows who Jesus is. She calls him, O Lord, Son of David. That is a very specific title for the Messiah. And she knows it. We don't know how she knew this. But here's a Gentile woman who knew and believed in Jesus while his own people and nation were rejecting him. What, what irony. But what is more unusual is the way that Jesus responded to her. At first, she didn't speak or respond to her at all. But then when his disturbed disciples asked him to get rid of her, probably by asking him to give her what she wanted so she could go away. When they said that, Jesus responded to them by saying another strange thing. In verse 24, he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These words are very similar to how Jesus charged his disciples when he sent them out to preach the kingdom of heaven, to heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers, to raise the dead, and to cast out demons. Remember, he sent them out two by two. And basically, he told them to do what he had been doing after he, quote, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. We read about that back in chapter 10. Now, remember when he told them this. I'll read Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he sent them specifically to the Israelites. And now in our text, it appears that Jesus is describing the limits of his ministry, both to his disciples and to this woman who is right there. Of course, we now know that Jesus' ministry would reach out to the whole world, to all of mankind. But that would happen primarily after Jewish Israel rejected and murdered him. Then, after his resurrection, he would reach out to the whole world, including the world of the future, through his apostles and the church. But when the woman heard these words of apparent exclusion from Jesus, she didn't give up, but persisted in her pleading. 
saying in verse 25, Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. We don't really get this today because we use the word worship in a very loose way. But she came to Jesus and worshipped him. If you look up the Greek word, it has a specific meaning. It meant that she either knelt or lay prostrate before him. She was placing herself in obeisance to him and subservience to him. That's what the word worship translated in the New Testament. That's what it means. It doesn't just mean raising your hands and saying hallelujah. Uh, it means much more specific than that. But she came and worshipped him, pleading, Lord, help me. She's desperate and just wouldn't give up knowing that Jesus could heal her daughter. She wouldn't give up. Interestingly, Jesus taught a parable in Luke's gospel about being persistent. If you turn to Luke chapter 11, we'll read verses 5 through 9. He's talking to the crowd, and he told them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, let me borrow three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a trip has dropped in on me, and I don't have anything to serve him. Suppose he answers from inside, Stop bothering me. The door is already locked, and my children are here with us in the bedroom. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus goes on and says, I tell you, even though that man doesn't want to get up and give him anything because he is his friend, he will get up and give him whatever he needs because of his persistence. So I say to you, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened for you. Jesus is telling people to keep at it, to be persistent in our requests, just as this woman is doing. But Jesus again puts up a barrier to her. In verse 26, he says, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. That appears to be an insult. But the word that's translated dogs is one of two Greek words. One of the words for dogs refers to wild, mangy, scavenger dogs, which are often dangerous. But Jesus isn't using that word. He's using the other one the one that refers to household pets, 
tame and friendly. So what Jesus is basically saying is that it isn't good for him to take his message for the Jews and give it to Gentiles instead. It appears that Jesus is testing the persistence of this woman's faith, even referring to her and her daughter as little dogs, though he did soften the insult by using the word for household pets. Excuse me. At that point, many people would be offended, but she ignored the insult. And this woman presses on, even by responding within the context of that short parable that Jesus told. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now, at that response, there's a huge change in Jesus' demeanor. He actually seems to become ecstatic. Elated to see her great faith. In verse 28, he says so. He says, Then Jesus answered and said to her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. By the way, in your translation, you probably have an exclamation point when Jesus says, Oh, woman, great is your faith. That wasn't just put there by the translators, but the, the Greek tense of those words that Jesus spoke implies that kind of, of expression, of intense expression. So even after Jesus' denial, after his rebuff, and even insult, this Gentile woman shines forth with her great persistent faith. And Jesus rewards her by healing her daughter and openly praising her great faith. In all the Gospels, this woman is just one of two people who received this extraordinary, powerful praise from Jesus. Oh, woman, great is your faith. And the Greek is even stronger. The other person to receive Jesus' highest praise is a Roman soldier, a centurion. And we find his story in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read that story now. It's Luke chapter 7, the first nine verses. Now when he, Jesus, concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, 
he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, centurion was a soldier who was over a hundred men. So he was an officer. This, a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. Quote, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. This was what they said about this Gentile soldier. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then he explains that he understands Jesus' situation. In verse 8, for he says, For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go. And he goes. And to another, Come. And he comes. And to my servant, Do this. And he does it. You see, he was saying that he knew Jesus' position. Jesus was under authority, authority of the Father. And in that position, he has authority over others. So the centurion knew that Jesus has that authority and that it was given to him by the Father. So when Jesus heard that explanation, when he heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So we have two statements of strong faith from Jesus. I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And, O oh woman, great is your faith. Jesus never said anything this strong to anyone else, not to anyone in Israel, not to any Jew, but only to these two Gentiles, foreigners, who knew who Jesus was even when the nation of Israel didn't. And by the way, in both cases, you'll note that Jesus did the healing without even seeing the person. He did it from a distance. As a soldier said, but say the word and my servant will be healed. He knew that Jesus had that kind of power.
Now, the woman's persistence is a great lesson for us. She simply would not give up. Remember back in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, when Jesus taught on the presence of prayer? In the New King James, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. And you will seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. This is so important to God that he gives it to us twice. Here, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, and also in Luke 11, in that parable that we read of the man asking for bread at midnight. As you have probably heard before, most of our translations are seriously deficient here with ask, seek, knock. The Greek tense that's used clearly indicates that these are to be ongoing actions. So the correct translation is ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. So when I read those verses before, that story of the man asking for bread at midnight, I used the International Standard Version. Not the NIV, but the International Standard Version. I don't believe it's available in print, but it is available for free online, and it's a very good translation. I use that in that quote from Luke 11 earlier because that's the only translation I could find that's gotten it right. They do well also in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8 in the Sermon on the Mount, compared to what we just read from the New King James. We read this, Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be open for you. Because everyone who keeps asking will receive, and the person who keeps searching will find, and the person who keeps knocking will have the door opened. Now, the reason I'm going to such lengths about this here is because there are now and have been a great number of teachers and even whole denominations that teach falsely about prayer. Very damaging teaching. Perhaps you've heard some people say this. We should only pray about a thing once, just once, and let it go. Leave it at the cross. God hears, and to keep repeating yourself only reveals your unbelief 
and lack of faith. Have any of you heard that? I've heard it many times over the years. It was even said in the, the first church that Pia and I attended. And it's false. It is clearly false. It's like saying, whis Satan whispering in your ear, okay, you told him once, you don't need to say it again. But from what we just read, God rewards persistence. Clearly, being persistent in our prayers pleases our Lord. To plead with God despite obstacles and opposition, just as that Syrophoenician woman did, that demonstrates our faith and our belief in our Lord. So ask and keep on asking. When you pray, seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Be persistent and don't give up. If any of you have read the biography of George Mueller, it's an incredible story of this man's life. He was a German who became an Englishman who was really called by God. This was in the 1830s and 40s. He was called by God to start orphanages there in England, in Bristol. And uh, he did that because orphans were treated terribly in England. They were basically sent to workhouses where they were worked literally to death. So he opened an orphanage. And he had one rule. His rule was he would never ask people for money. He would let them know his needs, but he would only ask God for financial resources. And as a result, over the following decades, and by the way, those orphanages still exist in England today, over those decades, the one building became two, became three, became five. It grew and grew and grew because God supplied the means without George Miller ever asking anything from anybody, just letting them know the circumstances. Now, I tell you that about this man because he also had a personal prayer that he prayed privately to God. He had three friends that were unbelievers, and it broke his heart. So he committed to pray for them until they were saved. The first one, one of them was saved shortly after he began praying for his salvation. Another one, a second one, didn't come to the Lord for decades. And it was years. I think Mueller was 
a late middle-aged or even an old man when his friend got saved, finally. Whew. God answered prayer. You see, he'd been praying for these people consistently. But then George Mueller died. And that third friend was saved shortly after his death. So persistence in prayer is so very important. Okay, as we move on, we quickly notice something odd. Jesus and his disciples had just hiked between 50 and 100 miles to get to where they met that Syrophoenician Gentile woman. Jesus heals the woman's daughter, marvels at her great faith, and then immediately they hike back down to Israel. They skirt across the eastern shore of the Lake of Galilee. Then they go up on a mountain in northern Decapolis and heal multitudes, just as they'd done before. Evidently, the trip into Phoenicia was just to meet this one faithful Gentile woman. A woman who somehow knew who Jesus was, then drew out her strong faith, heal her daughter, and then come back again. Jesus did the same thing though without the long, long hike, back in chapter 8 of Matthew that we looked at a few months ago. Remember after the episode of calming the wind and the waves, Jesus and his disciples arrived on the eastern shore, which was Gentile territory in the region of the Gerasenes. It was a city of the Decapolis. There were two demon-possessed men there. Other Gospels say just one. But these men were wild and violent, living in the tombs. They couldn't be bound by chains or controlled in any way. But when Jesus arrived, suddenly these demon-possessed men they came running to him with the demons begging Jesus not to torture them before the proper time. So Jesus sent all the demons. Remember, they were called legion. There were so many. He sent all of them into a herd of swine who ran into the lake and drowned. But when the townspeople saw what Jesus had done, ignoring the man who'd just been delivered, they begged Jesus to leave, which he did. Evidently, the only reason Jesus wanted to go there was to free those demon-possessed men. But back to our text, 
in Matthew 15, 29 to 31, we read this. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So far, it seems very familiar. When the text tells us that they skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on a mountain and sat down there, it's telling us that they went down the eastern side of the lake to the region of Decapolis. Decapolis, by the way, was 10 cities that had been established in that area by Rome. And uh, they were completely Gentile and Roman. As we said, we've seen that situation several times before. But an interesting difference is the kind of miraculous dealing, healings that Jesus did for Gentiles. The lame, blind, mute, maimed, and more. These healings are all conditions that were impossible to heal in Jesus' day. Yet he did just that. In fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, which we'll read right now. Isaiah said, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Isaiah was prophesying into the future of these wonderful events. So, this mostly Gentile multitude marveled at the healings and the miracles Jesus did. And seeing what, what he had done, they glorify the God of Israel. But then this multitude of Gentiles would experience another great miracle. Back to our text, verse 32. Now, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, and this is going to be very familiar to you, and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days. The other crowd had just been with them one day. They've been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? 
Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. So now we have the second miraculous mass feeding, which is similar to the one we read in the, earlier in the last chapter. But there are significant differences. You see, many people want to say that this is just a retelling of the same event. But that cannot be true for several reasons. In the first event, they had five loaves and two fish. But in this event, they had seven loaves and a few small fish. In the first event, they took up 12 small baskets full of fragments. They were the kind of things you'd sling over your shoulder and carry like a lunchbox. But in this event, they took up seven large baskets. The first event was in the Jewish region of Galilee, near Bethsaida. But the second event was far south, in the Gentile region of the Decapolis. In the first event, there were 5,000 men plus women and children, or about 15,000 people. But in this event, there were about 4,000 men plus women and children, or about 12,000 people. In the first feeding, Jesus sent his disciples away by boat while he dismissed the multitude that wanted to make him king by force. Excuse me. And then he went up to the mountain, up the mountain alone to pray. Later, he would see them struggling against the wind and waves and went to them walking on the water. In this second feeding, Jesus first sent the multitude away and then he joined his disciples in the boat to sail across to the northwestern side of the lake. Let me show you this again. We'll lower it down now. In the first event, it was in, in the hill country over here, what today we call the Golan Heights. 
right up in the, the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. But in this time, they were way down south in the area of the Decapolis. And then it says he went from there to Magdala. And let me bring that up. He went from way down here by the Decapolis region, and they sailed all the way up to Magdala. So it's a very different situation, very different situation. <laughs> and then there's two more differences, two more items that I believe you will see as quite important. First, is the author of this gospel, Matthew, the disciple and the human author of this gospel. He was present and participated in both events. Both events. He was one of those who distributed the food and then helped to collect 12 and then seven large baskets of fragments. He was a personal eyewitness to both events. And so it's very unlikely that he would think there were two events if there was only one. And then the capstone proof that there are two events recorded here is that Jesus himself testified to two separate occasions in the very next chapter in Matthew 16, verses 9 and 10. We'll read that two weeks from now when we look at chapter 16. But there Jesus rebukes his disciples and saying, don't you, rem you remember the feeding of the 5,000 and when you took up 12 baskets of fragments and then the feeding of the 4,000 when you took up seven large baskets of fragments? He says, don't you remember that? Those are the words of Christ. So he himself refers to two different events. So there were two. And again, the first event was largely to Jews, and the second was mostly to Gentiles. Now, this chapter that we've read in, I guess, three different sections, it covers several different events in Jesus' life and ministry. Our God commends and responds to persistent prayer. And he is also ready to go out of his way to meet the need of any believer who is praying. Also, our Lord Jesus is quite able to heal the most impossible conditions and to do so 
from a distance. As the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke 137, with God, nothing will be impossible. That was Gabriel. And then Jesus himself said the same thing several times. In Luke 18, 27, he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then later on in Matthew, that we'll get to next year sometime, he said, But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then in Mark chapter 10, But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. I bring that out because too often we forget, we forget that there is absolutely nothing impossible to God. And that means that what we have a limited perspective of God. Sometimes it's called, we have a little God instead of the great, awesome, infinite God who is real. Our God is too small. The one that we, that we think about, he's too small. We look at something, we say, there's no way. There's no way this could be this could be done and along he comes and he does it we need to remember that so we need to be careful not to limit our expectations of God but to understand that with God all things are possible and we should beware of limiting him in our minds we see in these verses that our Lord is quite willing to minister to Gentiles, as we'll see even more after his ascension and the growth of the early church. And again, with his miraculous feeding, we should understand that our Lord is able to supply our every need because he has love and compassion for us. And when we pray, one of the reasons we write it down is because we're going to come back and we're going to pray that again. And we're going to come back and pray it again. And again. And again. Maybe for years. Maybe for decades. Maybe for moments. Maybe for days. But we are told clearly that we are to be persistent in our prayers and not give up. Because to give up would be to give up on God. I would say the only limitation that we should place on our prayers is if somehow we learn that what we are praying is not God's will. 
If it's not God's will, give it up. Because he will not answer that in the positive. Otherwise, we need to keep it up. We need to be persistent. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this very rich chapter that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write. We thank you, Father, for the the lessons that you give us, not just here, but throughout your word, from Genesis to Revelation, lesson after lesson. My prayer, Father, is that we would take the lessons that we learn, that we read about, perhaps that we hear in a message, that we would take those lessons, Lord, and that we would apply them in our lives. And that we would understand that you are an infinite God for whom nothing is impossible. And that we would learn that while you don't immediately answer our prayers, we're to be persistent and continue. And look for your answer, but continue to pray. And we thank you, Lord, that as you had compassion and love for those two multitudes that you fed miraculously, we know you also have love and compassion for us. We thank you. And we receive that love, and we receive your compassion. In your name, our Lord Jesus. Amen.